Good morning, Steve Dale on WGN. Politics can be difficult, right? Uh, it's a great way to wake up in the morning, but I mean, you know, it's it's absolutely true. And what's going on with pet store sales in this state? How just a couple of pet stores are circumventing the law is is criminal, really, but it's not because they found a way to do a workaround for now. We're going to talk about that and also on the national scene, what is going on with Puppy Mills with Wayne Passell of Animal Wellness Action? Michael Puck is the founder of Canine Photo and the Global Dog Art Gallery. Uh, he has delivered TEDx talks about feeling better and getting better with photos of dogs. And I don't know, I've done, I don't know, 3,502,812.5 interviews. I've talked to a lot of people over the years. I've been doing this a long time. I don't ever recall doing an interview about how a picture, a photo, an image of a dog can help us to feel better. So uh, as a photographer, Michael, when did you kind of put all this together that, okay, dogs can help people through the images of the dogs? Yeah. Yeah, Steve, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Great question. Uh, It took a moment because I did not connect the dots right away. Dog photography is something that I'm very passionate about. I'm passionate about animals in general. So I picked up dog photography at some point in time, 2014, to help shelter animals. And those pictures that are posted on Facebook to find homes for animals got a lot of responses, 10,000, 20,000. And I was blown away by the positive response. But I didn't really think much about it because my focus was really just to help animals to find homes. But shortly thereafter, I was then asked by private individuals if I could take pictures of their dogs and cats, by the way. And so I did that. And then I got a lot of feedback from those animal pet owners And some of these pet owners were business owners. And they ended up putting the work into their businesses. And this is where I got probably the most significant feedback, where people were engaging in conversations, folks that they had never talked to before. And a lot of dialogue occurred. Uh, A financial planner that ended up with, with dog photos in their office suggested that it would help with building trust with their clients. So I was very intrigued about the anecdotal feedback that I received. And if you think about it, advertisement today features a lot of dogs. And and advertisers do not show anything that doesn't really work because they measure meticulously um, how their apps perform. And so I ended up doing research just to sit down and see what's already out there. There is research out there. Um, it was published, I'll give you one reference quickly, a study in the, in the Journal of Business Research measured a 56% increase in intent to purchase when pictures of dogs were used in print advertisement. When I found that piece, I knew I was onto something. Well, you know, this isn't necessarily news because ad agencies have known for Decades and decades using, going back to when everything was in black and white. Not that I personally remember those (laughs) days, but I've seen the ads. And pictures of dogs were everywhere. Some of those dogs became rather famous in that day and age. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dogs have been used in movies and television programs and TV commercials. 
since TV began doing commercials, and even the bark of a dog, back before there was TV with radio, and it was theater of the mind, uh, dogs were stars of radio dramas and radio shows. Uh, You didn't see the dog, but you pictured the dog in your own mind. There must be a reason why that's always been done. So this isn't necessarily news, but it's not been thought about except by ad agencies. You know, they I think Michael they know about this and have known about this uh dogs and other oh, animals do. for a very long time. Yeah, and they didn't tell us about it. <laughs> That's quite right. Well, they, they did they because kept it as a as a secret. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It's no secret because you watch the Super Bowl and half the commercials have a dog or at least some animal in the commercial. That's the Super Bowl of 2022. Was that the most recent one? Or mm-hmm. we can go back to the first Super Bowl, however many decades ago that was. It was the same thing. I mean, animals have been used in advertisement for a reason. What do you think that reason is? Um, so the research that I did came to the conclusion that we have, especially with dogs, we have a joint evolutionary journey for more than 12,000 years. And so we have actually evolved alongside with dogs, and dogs have evolved alongside of human beings. And so we've been influenced in our evolutionary development based on that close bond. And by the way, some researchers say it was more than 40,000 years, but I'll go with the most conservative number, which is 12,000. Yeah, and I think and I think long, I think actually it is more like 40,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, yeah I've, I'll, I'll try to keep it always conservative. Okay. Okay. But we get the idea. So but it, So what you've done is you've gone a bit further and have said, "You know what? In ICUs in hospitals and in hospital rooms in general, the decor should be dogs." Why do you say that, and what work have you done to uh, provide those images for hospitals? Yeah. So specifically for hospitals and medical settings, there is one aspect that influences the outcomes physical and psychologically, and that is stress. The higher the stress level, the slower the recovery, the slower the improvement in health, physical, and, and mental well-being. And so, um, again, there's research that suggests in the presence of a dog, in this particular case, therapy dogs, patients have increased, um, have reduced, not increased, have reduced their stress by 57% in comparison to not having dogs around. And so with that, they have been able to establish a baseline of recovery, which is much quicker. And the longer patients stay in hospitals, the more risk for infections and and complications they have. It also costs more money. So that was one of the the key findings there to say, hmm, if dogs reduce stress in patients, they can even reduce the perceived pain. And the University of Maryland has um, published research that just looking at pictures of dogs for five minutes increases our perceived well-being by 16.5%. Again, just five minutes. Mm -hmm. So knowing how impactful therapy dogs are, knowing the research around photos of dogs, it was very easy then to put the pieces together to say, so if we have pictures of dogs in medical facilities, people will feel better. 
they release a higher percentage of oxytocin, which is measured to be up to 300%, which, by the way, is um, the research regarding that is also based on looking at pictures of dogs and live dogs, real dogs. Um, so I think the data points I was able to line up really suggested that pictures of dogs in areas where stress is very rampant and where people um, really get nervous um, would be very effective because it would calm people down. Dentist is another great example to to put pictures of dogs because who loves to go to the dentist? <laughs> we need pictures of them and, on the ceiling, I think, because that's what we're always looking at at the dentist <laughs> office. Or that big bright light yeah, instead Instead of that shining toward us, maybe a dog's face shining toward us. There's an animal-assisted therapy group in Chicago called Rainbow Animal-Assisted Therapy. I will talk about them and how that ties in with what you're talking about and also some ideas yeah. you have. I want to know more about you as well because growing up, a dog made a big difference for you. We'll do all that when we come back on WGN. I'm talking with dog photographer Michael Puck, who has done much more than photograph dogs. The Global Dog Art Gallery. He'll explain what that is all about in a moment. And we were talking about having even images, photographs of dogs in hospitals really can make a difference. And, you know, there's an animal-assisted therapy group in Chicago called Rainbow Animal-Assisted Therapy. There are several here in Chicago, uh, but they're the largest. And I, I recall some number of years ago, let's say 15 years ago, just to take a number, truly, they would have to convince, and it wasn't that long ago, facilities, hospitals, but also uh, senior citizen centers, library schools, etc., et that having a dog come in or dogs come in to work, because it is work for the dogs, uh, ha- clearly has benefit. And they had a tough time trying to sell that idea. Now, 15 years or 10 years even later, the reverse is true. There's more of a need, more facilities asking than there are number of dogs available. And that's kind of how it is in the real world, I think. There are more people in the hospital than there are available dogs to go to the hospital to visit people who would love to have a visit from a dog. Does this sort of substitute the idea that, oh, no, sorry, can't get a real dog to come in, but you, you have some pictures of dogs right there in the room. Yes, if you, you cannot replace the real dog. I mean, the real dog is unique in, in, in what it can do for the patients. But as you pointed out, there is a shortage of therapy dogs. The last number I was able to find is that we have just about over 50,000 therapy dogs, certified therapy dogs in the U.S. Now compare that to the 2019 number of patients in the United States in hospitals, and that was 36.2 million. So you know that the 50,000 dogs, even if they see multiple patients a day, don't have a chance to really reach everyone. And since my research suggests that photos of dogs can have a similar impact to dogs, having those two work in tandem can be very powerful because people experience lower stress, they feel better. And all these good things that come out of therapy dogs can be then um, really duplicated through the images. And for the images, obviously, they don't take breaks. They hang there 24-7. And so patients see them wherever they go, in common areas, in patient rooms, 
Um, by the way, just uh, I also looked into uh, children's hospitals. The top 10 rated children's hospitals have all active therapy dog programs. Yes. So, yeah, yeah this is something everyone wants these days, but there are just not enough dogs there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so your interest in this began, it turns out, uh, at a very young age, at least your interest in dogs and how one dog helped save you when you were a kid. Uh, yeah, I think just four had a very unfortunate incident that burned both of my legs with boiling water. And so I was rushed into the hospital, ended up in isolation care because I had basically two open wounds from hip to toe on, on both legs. Um, nobody was allowed to visit me, including my parents. And while the burn itself was obviously what caused the pain and, and all the attention initially, nobody paid attention to the psychological impact that this 10 days of being isolated from everything that I knew, in particular, my parents caused. And so when I left the hospital, I was a complete changed child. I was prior to going into hospital, I was you know, one of these positive, never met a stranger child, and I came out, I, I was withdrawing from my environment. I became a loner. I didn't trust anyone. And that went on for the better part of a decade, untreated and, and undiagnosed. But at the age of 12, so eight years later, uh, my family decided to get uh, a dog, our first dog. And I was able to connect with that dog on such a deep level that she was actually the one who reintroduced me to the world around me. She was a social butterfly. She ran up to everyone. When I walked <laughs> her, and I walked her every day for hours. She ran up to strangers, pulling me along behind her. And so initially, very reluctantly, I ended up talking with people and, and really got reintroduced to the environment around me. And, and Steve, I could not tell you where my mental health would be today if it would not have been for that um, black lab husky mix. What I was think your... she saved not only my mental health, I think she might have actually saved my life. Wow. What was her name? Kova. Well, that's, that's a nice story. It's an amazing story, but it isn't an amazing story because I've heard so many stories like that over the years, you know. It is incredible the mm -hmm. connection we have with dogs. You're right about that. Tell me about the Global Dog Art Gallery. So after having these 14 years together with Cora, where she really became my best buddy uh, during childhood, I felt so ob not obligated. That's probably the wrong word. I was had such a strong desire to give back to animals in general that for decades I was searching, what can I do that makes a difference? Something that goes beyond the time I can volunteer and beyond the money I can give to animal shelters. Um, beyond dropping food off at the shelter. And so the Global Dog Art Gallery um, is something that does that very effectively because it scales my ability to help. So it is a Global Dog Art Gallery, as the name suggests, but it comprises work from 30 internationally celebrated dog photographers. As of right now, there's actually not a single piece of my own work in there. I'll try to squeeze one or two in within the next couple of months. But I really wanted to highlight the tremendous talent that has developed over the last 10, 15 years. Because dog photography is also something that is relatively new. And many people still haven't heard about it. But there are folks out there across the world. I'm representing about 15 countries 
where individuals from 15 countries and global dog art gallery. And so what it does, it offers exceptionally effective dog walla that was curated specific to generating these type of feelings that we have when we look at dogs in order to duplicate that for business settings and for medical settings. We talked so far primarily about the, the medical setting, but there's actually an equally strong case to make for business settings because pictures of dogs are incredibly effective in building connections with other people. So well, not to dogs. The images, and everyone who has ever walked a dog in the park knows how, how that works. Yeah, well, the images are quite incredible on this website. Are, is everything for sale that's at globaldogart.com? Yes, but the one caveat is the only thing I'm selling is finished wall art. So you can't buy the digital. Um, it's just finished wall art. I even offer wall art design services to business to say, hey, if you have a wall or a conference room where you like to have dog wall art, um, I can show you before you actually make the purchase what it will look like in your environment. And you'll make your employees and those who come into your business uh, feel good, as we've talked about, globaldogart.com. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to meet you. My pleasure. Great to meet you, Steve. Next week, we celebrate Memorial Day. And what does that have to do with our dogs? Well, a couple of components to that. First of all, the number of dogs that have served in the military and saved human lives, incalculable since the Vietnam War. And while we are not quite anywhere near where we need to be yet, considering these dogs as live beings the way they ought to be, they are no longer at least considered only equipment. I mean, so many dogs were left behind in Vietnam, sadly, starved to death, etc., etc. Well, that no longer happens, but we're not there yet. But these dogs are incredible. What they, what they do for our soldiers, what do they do? We'll talk about that next week. And then when the soldiers come back, so many dogs save soldiers' lives that are here serving as service dogs. Yeah, that's right. The number of servicemen and women coming back with PTSD and other issues. These dogs are incredible, and we will celebrate them next week. He is the president of Animal Wellness Action and Center for Humane Economy. And most importantly, a longtime friend of mine, Wayne Passell. You live this stuff. And when you first told me about the Fight Act, as it's called, I thought, well, why do we need this? It has to do in part with dogfighting. Dogfighting is already a felony in all 50 states. Illinois happens to have some really strong statewide laws having to do with dogfighting. So why do we need this? Well, Steve, th- thank you for having me on. And you have been working on animal cruelty issues for a long time. And I think both you and I would agree that while we have some great laws to stop animal cruelty, including dogfighting and cockfighting, it's still widespread. And I think this is an attempt to perfect the federal law to enhance the capacity of law enforcement to crack down on dogfighting rings and cockfighting rings. And frankly, it's really important that your listeners know this is not just something that happened in Chicago or in a rural you know, part of Illinois or some other part of the nation where these activities fester. This is a national and global industry. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of animals are trafficked all over the world for fighting. 
The numbers on cockfighting are staggering. It could be more than a million animals trafficked a year, shipped to Mexico, the Philippines, Vietnam, Honduras, all over the world. These are global industries. They've been around for thousands of years. It's time we need. It's time we stop stop them in in you know the United States and obviously do what we can to dry up the supply across the world. You know, when you think of cockfighting, uh, you you might think of some southern states and some other areas, but I happen to know cockfighting does happen in Chicago in certain neighborhoods. So explain, because I think some people don't know, what is cockfighting? Cockfighting involves pitting two specially bred and trained roosters to fight in a pit. They are equipped with razor-sharp curved ice picks called gaffs or curved blades uh, and they shave down, the cockfighter shaves down the natural spur on the back of the rooster's leg, straps the blade or the, or the ice pick, the gaff, to the bird's legs and it's defined as a short knife fight, a long knife fight, or a gaff fight and cockfighters enter a number of birds into a derby so it might be a three cockfight or a four cockfight so you have a whole evening or afternoon of fights. There might be 75 different entries with each person entering four birds. So it's just a massacre and a mutilation of these animals, all for gambling. Uh, it's typically associated with, with narcotics trafficking, money laundering. There was just a terrible uh, mass shooting at a cockfight in Hawaii where law enforcement had been looking the other way for too long. Two innocent people murdered, three others shot. This is a terrible practice. It is killing animals just for the thrill of it and the gambling. And it's not just killing, it's mutilating animals. Yeah. Uh, and and the thing about dogfighting or cockfighting, which I'm not, uh, I will say, as familiar with, I don't think there's a dogfighting ring ever where those involved aren't also involved in other crimes, often drug-related, but a variety of other crimes, in some cases wanted for something like murder, literally. I mean, these are criminals that that do this, and each and every time, I remember back in the day when we had to really, really encourage law enforcement to pay attention because the fact that dogs were killing one another or at least hurting one another didn't matter so much. What mattered, finally, is that we were able to prove that all the people involved are criminal elements, often wanted by law enforcement. Uh, And that's still the case. But it's gotten worse in a way, because everyone who was there could see the event, which sadly, shockingly, included and still does include children, which is horrible that they have to watch this go on. But now... They can not only watch it go on on the Internet, but they can gamble on the Internet. So the gambling you mentioned isn't only for the 10 or 20 or as much as, I don't know, 100 people that are there, but it's for all of the others that are paying attention online as well. Your intent is to stop that, I believe. We want to stop the gambling. We want to stop the broadcasting, the online betting on dogfighting and cockfighting and Steve, as you know, because you've been doing humane work for a long time, our movement and our efforts to interdict cruelty have to evolve with the times. So much gambling is now not done in person. It's done online. 
So we have to change the anti-dogfighting and anti-cockfighting laws to adapt to this new reality of global broadcasting of dogfights and cockfights. And, you know, you're right, and you've said it on your show many times, when we exhibit this sort of malicious cruelty to animals, it deadens the soul of the people who participate or even watch. That becomes an antecedent to other forms of social violence in our society, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, you know, shootings, you name it. It's terrible. And I say to the law enforcement community, which has been, you know, so so many dedicated law enforcement people have been working on this, but I say to everybody, don't just treat this as some sort of petty little crime. Get after the dogfighters and cockfighters and get the whole group, and you'll make our streets and our community safer. Yeah. This is like a dragnet to get everybody who's involved in a wide range of terrible practices you know, out of commission if they can be successfully prosecuted. All right. Well, the FIGHT Act is what it's called. How can people—I can't imagine there are many that don't support this, Republicans or Democrats or independents or— Tuna fish people? I don't know. What's another party? Uh, Independence? <laughs> Tuna fish people? Whatever! I, I can't imagine a soul... Hmm, I said tuna fish, now I said soul. I, I guess I'm hungry. I don't know. I can't imagine, though, anyone not supporting this. So for those who do, how can we see this through? This is a federal bill, so everybody in the country has two U.S. senators and a representative. The House bill is H.R. 2742. You can call your U.S. representative. Mike Quigley of Chicagoland is already a co-sponsor. Let's get the rest of the great group of lawmakers from Illinois on board. And then a Senate bill is soon to come, and that's where Senator Durbin and Senator Duckworth, both of whom have very strong records on animal welfare, can swing behind this as well. Indeed. All right. It's always good to talk to you, Wayne, but there is more. Yes, more to talk about having to do with dogs and cats sold at pet stores. And I'm talking about the Puppy Mill Pipeline. And, well, I'll explain what's going on in Illinois, and you'll talk about what's happening nationally to make a difference. And we need that national help. You'll explain when we come back on WGN. Talking to Wayne Paselli is the president of Animal Wellness Action and Center for Humane Economy. Uh, Wayne, what is Animal Wellness Action? Animal Wellness Action is an animal welfare charity. It's a 501c4, so it's organized to do lobbying and to drive public policies and also to enforce our laws. So we're really trying to prevent animal cruelty by changing the guardrails, if you will, in society when it comes to our treatment of animals and to shield animals from cruelty. Well, uh, nothing can be more cruel, I don't think, than puppy mills. And uh, let me explain what's going on in Illinois and why I'm talking about this is because no responsible breeder ever, ever, ever sells to a pet store. Those dogs, greatly dogs, are from either commercial facilities that no one seems to know anything about, that has they have no transparency whatsoever, but greatly puppy mills. Uh, and they're not sold directly to pet stores. They're sold through brokers, and oftentimes, most oftentimes, two or three or four brokers in between. So it's even hard to follow that bouncing ball as to where those dogs came from originally. So some number of years ago, sort of an online 
effort began to ban the sales of dogs and cats at pet stores because the hope was, okay, at least in that community, and now there are about 400-plus communities that have said, no dogs, no cats can be sold at pet stores in that city. Chicago is included in that, uh, which is wonderful. Cook County is one of many counties that have said the same. Now, in Illinois, we became, in this state, the fifth state, there are now six states, that ban the sales of dogs and cats at pet stores. But there's a workaround, a handful of pet stores have said, uh, well, there's, there's wording in the law that allows us to do this, and I'll explain if you want me to, Wayne. The point is they're doing it. And they're trying to fix that wording. However, the pet store industry and one pet store in particular, a national chain, has hired lobbyists for a ton of money to work really hard to say this thing not, ought not even be heard down in Springfield uh, by the Senate or the House. And so far, they've been somewhat successful. All right, so that's kind of where we are in Illinois. But the, 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 the other side is, when, and I've testified at these things, and the other side, the other groups say, well, what you're going to do when you close down sales of dogs and cats at pet stores, people will just go online more, and the puppy mills sell there as well. And indeed, they do. And that's where I'm going to drop it off to you, because you are working with Senator Dick Durbin and others to say, no, 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 we want to do something about that. Yes, Steve, that's great background on all the different back and forth that's happened in Illinois, an important Midwest state, a border state with Missouri, which is the number one puppy mill state in the country, and close by, uh, obviously, Iowa, which is the number three state. Kansas, historically, has been a huge state in the Midwest for puppy mills. You know, it's... It's a good thing to to get the pet stores, the brick-and-mortar pet stores, to stop selling dogs from puppy mills. As you noted, there's no transparency. When we have taken a look behind the, uh, the edifice of these, of these puppy mills, we see you know, dogs in cages uh, exposed to extremes of heat and cold. The females bred every heat cycle. No socialization of these animals. You know, from a business perspective, this doesn't make sense. These are dogs who are coming into the home, and they're not socialized to a human presence. They've got genetic problems because of inbreeding, as well as some of the uh, characteristics of some of the breeds that have, you know, different different proclivities toward different hereditary and genetic problems. So you've got a wide range of issues at work here. So we need to address the pet stores, but a lot of the sales, as you noted, have moved online. So the Federal Animal Welfare Act creates standards of care for large-scale commercial dog breeders. You've got to have more than four breeding females, you know, producing dogs for sale in order to have the government inspect the facility. Now, the existing set of standards are more like survival standards. You know, you've got to have some, give them some water and you've got to give them some food. You can't have a jagged edge on the enclosure so the animal cuts himself or herself, that's basic. You know, that's fundamental. What the Puppy Protection Act would do, which is what Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, who's on the Agriculture Committee, which is this year going to formulate a farm bill, which should include some animal welfare provisions, it would strengthen these standards. It would require socialization. 
It would have minimum space standards. It would have limitations on the frequency of breeding of the animals to give the females a bit of a rest. So again, nothing revolutionary, but something important to create better breeding standards because, you know, we need dogs in society, right? I mean, the shelters, well, we saw this in the pandemic, the numbers, you know, really surged in terms of people wanting a dog or a cat. The shelters didn't have enough animals, so you've got to go to a breeder. If you go to a breeder, know the breeder. Know that the breeder is taking care of the animals properly and don't patronize a puppy mill until we can assure that there are safer standards for the dogs through this federal law or this federal bill that Senator Durbin is advancing. All right, well, then we wouldn't call it, if they're doing it the right way, maybe we don't call them a puppy mill in in the first place. So who would, we only have a couple of minutes here, Wayne, who would enforce this? The U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh Aha, so uh, you're about to say what I'm about to say. So uh, go ahead, I interrupted. My concern, you know I'm about to say it, is will they enforce it? Yeah, no, this is a problem, Steve. They have not been enforcing our laws adequately, you know, I think there's an inherent conflict between the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which promotes agriculture, and the and the 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 role as regulator of the puppy mills. A lot of the puppy mills used to be involved in pig farming, or cattle farming, or other forms of agriculture. And when things really got consolidated in the animal agriculture sector, some of the folks, you know, went into the puppy production business. But they they had the same kind of utilitarian attitude toward the dogs. So they treat the dogs like they're pigs. And that's not a good thing because in a lot of pig farming, the animals are, are not treated horribly well. I mean, they, they, they house the sows, the breeding sows, in a crate that immobilizes them. And if you have that mentality and you think of the dog as kind of a livestock unit, you're not going to socialize them. You're not going to give them space to move. You're not going to give them a healthy life. And that's the problem. But you know, unless we change the architecture of the regulatory system, you know, we're, we're ultimately not going to get the greatest outcome. But right now we're working with what we've got. At least these standards will be improved, and we as animal advocates can watch USDA and try to hold it accountable. Well, as you said, it's a start. I don't know that it's an answer either, but as usual, we are on the same page, my friend. Uh, you do you do amazing work. Wayne Passell, President Animal Wellness Action and Center for Humane Economy. As always, I thank you so much. But before I, yeah, before, before I let you go, what is the website? Oh, thank you, Steve. You're such a great, great animal advocate and such a great voice for the animals. www.animalwellnessaction.org. Sign up, get involved. We'll get you alerts so you can participate in the movement to help animals. All right. As always, it's good to talk to you, Wayne. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Steve. We've all heard of diabetic alert dogs. We're going to hear more about that with Vicky Santo soon. That's right, the Ron and Vicky Santo Diabetic Alert Dog Foundation. The Chicago Cubs, in fact, are honoring again Ron Santo. But that's that's all to come in a couple of weeks. But we know the dogs can sniff out diabetic spikes, right? I mean, the child is sleeping at night. There's such a connection with the dog that the dog, who is also sleeping, awakens and knows that child is in trouble. We know dogs can sniff out cancer, even find bed bugs. How about turtle-seeking dogs? Eastern box turtles may be disappearing, and when their population plummets, that's a bad sign for the ecosystem, not to mention 
for the turtles. Individual turtles are tagged, then followed. That wouldn't be possible without the turtle-seeking canines. It all began back in 2007 in Tennessee. And today, similar turtle studies are also happening in Missouri and Illinois, using Boykin Spaniels to find the turtles. After all, you can't check the turtles' health unless you find them. Also, some of the infectious disease-threatening turtles potentially can threaten us too. Turtles win, they come out of their shell, and we win too. Now, imagine a child, your kid, in elementary school who begins to sneeze and the nose begins to run. Who does that child see? Is it the nurse? No, it might be a COVID-seeking dog. Dogs are doing this now in schools in some states around America. What they're doing is finding individuals, individual students that might have COVID, but they're also sniffing out areas. So let's say this room that wasn't used, but say it's a library and the dog marks a bookshelf and, and who knows who is at that bookshelf. But what they do is they disinfect the bookshelf and Who doesn't like dogs in schools anyway? We'll talk to you next week, bright and early on WGN.